People Smart, enabling organisations and individuals to be disability inclusive and accessible. Hello everyone, welcome to today's podcast episode. I'm Jodie Greer, I'm the founder of Be People Smart and I'm your host. But as always, busting myths with me, I have a wonderful guest speaker. So I'd like to introduce you to Lorraine Stanley. Lorraine, can you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Hello, Jodie, and thank you for having me on. Uh, So I'm Lorraine Stanley, and I'm the founder and CEO of SWAD, which stands for Sex With A Difference. And we're a not-for-profit training organisation specialising in the area of disability and sex. Do you know, I'm loving the fact that we're doing this episode, partly because it'd be really good to share more about you, Lorraine, and about your organisation. But because it's a subject we haven't touched on in the podcast so far. And one of the first things I've got to ask you (laughs) is you also (laughs) describe yourself as a YFNSG. So what's a YFNSG? It's a whole category of goddess that people haven't heard of before. And I thought, you know, when I get to know people um, over the course of business and all the rest of it, and I'm thinking, you know, we do the formal thing and the, you know, best wishes and all that kind of stuff. And then you do your name, your job title and the labels and all the rest of it. And I just thought, you know, I need to differentiate between the people who get what we're all about and who are at that sort of, you know, we're from the same tribe feel sort of thing uh, I use a lot of emojis in my emails and I uh, thought right I need something to sign off with you know and I haven't got any official letters after my name you know I've not been to university or anything so I thought basically sod it I'm going to be YFNSG and um, because I got tired of typing and here is what it stands for your friendly neighborhood sex goddess <laughs> I love that okay so yeah you know if you've gotten in with us, because if I start signing off on my emails with, with YFNSG, then you're sorted. You're in the club. You're a SWATite. Oh, I, I feel quite excited. I'm in the club. You are in the club. <laughs> you're oh, one of our friends. It's like, like I'm doing virtual hugs here. Hugs. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I like hugs as well. <laughs> so just to let you know, the two myths among anything else that comes up along the conversation that Lorraine and I are going to be busting are one that it's difficult to start a conversation on disabilities and the other one is quite simply that disabled people don't have sex so it's this is just a brilliant subject because it's something I hear a lot about so I'm quite excited um so starting with the first one Lorraine I mean, I know my views on, you know, I I hear it a lot that people think it's really difficult to start the conversation on disabilities. But tell us your views. Well, our views are that it's it's understandable for some people if they've not had a lot of contact with disabled people that they might be a little bit of apprehensive simply from the point of view that they've not been in that situation before. And so that's understandable. Um, but it shouldn't get in the way that, you know, disabled people or people with disabilities, depending on how you like to phrase things, um, are just regular people and they've just got additional shit that they have to deal with. Personally, that's how I would put it. And there may be the odd F word in this podcast, but bear with us. Um, so, yeah, and that's, you know, talking about disabilities, you've got people that either are really quite in your face and asking what is what is wrong quote unquote with you um but then you get 
you know, the conversations about sex um, and also, well, people are making assumptions whether you can or cannot or should or should not um, be having sex. And if you put the two taboos together, that's like brain exploding time and people just can't cope. And they start talking about, oh, well, we can't ask that question. This is from professionals. Yeah, we can't ask that question, that question, because we might open a can of worms. Um, and I've actually started Googling whether you can actually buy a can of worms because I'm thinking of using them <laughs> as demos for any talks I give. So, you know, and amazingly, you can actually get them. Yeah. Honest to goodness. You can get sweets that are a can of worms, like jelly snakes and worms and things. I know. I know. Um, so there's that. Um, but then you get from, you know, regular people who happen to have impairments or disabilities. And they're like, well, I really don't think that I can ask my occupational therapist or my physio or my GP or whoever it is, my social worker, for some support regarding intimacy because I don't want to offend them. I also, putting it bluntly, don't want to fuck up the support that I'm getting um, because they may think I'm some sort of deviant sexual, you know, sex crazed monster or monsterette so you know everybody's worried and everybody's so worried about saying the wrong thing that they don't say anything at all which is why you end up with people that maybe for years and years and years are missing out on hugs never mind you know a shag uh so <laughs> that that is what we're faced with and we're we're talking about intimacy which isn't just about having sex it's also about the, the little things in life, like having a hug or having a cuddle or spooning when you're in bed with your loved one that you've been with in bed with for 40 years. But then, you know, sadly, something has happened and physically you need a different type of bed. Um, what the what people call um, profiling beds. So the adjustomatic type beds, but they're super more you know accessible than that. And I don't feel it's. It's right that, you know, a couple who have been together for decades just because one of them needs a particular type of mattress that they can no longer, you know, share the same bed. Um, and sadly, when it comes to things like funding um, and the training and education of those professionals that are in charge of holding those purse strings, they often haven't thought it through. <laughs> Um, so what we do at SWAD is we hold a gigantic great big mirror up to all sides of the situation and say, well, look, what's reasonable and what's unreasonable? Um, and can we do a little bit of that, you know, uh, oh, gosh, what do they call it in the 80s and 90s? Blue sky thinking, thinking outside the box, insert any other like training type phrase in here. And, you know, it's not on. And recently I read somewhere about uh, sort of the social model of disability and the medical model of disability. And there was a particular point of view, you know, given in this article or whatever it was that I read. And that's it. That's, you know, we may not all start off as disabled, but as we go on in years and mobility issues arise and stuff like that, you know, what I'm doing and my partner Mike is doing with SWOD is we're future-proofing society and the healthcare system and the social care system for hopefully it won't be till like 30 years' time or something when we may need those adjustments. And so, yeah, that that's where we're coming from on that. I think, first of all, there's, there's a real important piece here about that starting the conversation part and particularly in the workplace 
because we need to be comfortable talking about disabilities. But there is a flip side and it's not about censoring conversation. But someone asked me recently, you know, what I would call a disabled person. And I said their name. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is, of course, it is an important subject that we talk about. It's all part of the whole diversity, equity and inclusion um, conversation. It's a massive part of it because it's a huge demographic for demographic of people and like you say it's the one area we can all join at any time yep so I think that's really important and that's where disability confidence comes in but going back to me saying it's not about censoring conversations but there is a flip side um you'll appreciate this one Lorraine so I did an internal um course with a company and had a guest speaker from within and he openly shared so he's a wheelchair user and he changed teams And the first day in his new team, one of the team members were very open about their curiosity. So, you know, people were asking where he was before, where he lived and stuff like that. And then one man actually asked him, um, so is he paralyzed from the waist down? He said, I am. And he said, well, have you got children? And he said, no, no, I haven't actually. And he said, well, does it work down there? Can you have them? He just said, I was flummoxed. I genuinely didn't know what to say yeah. to him. Yeah. I mean, I mean, really? Unless that was like one of your best friends where you might have those conversations. Yeah. Why? Why would you know? I don't have children. No one's ever asked me if I've got a womb. Yep. Oh, it's just the cringe factor, isn't it? Um, and it's also... There's no, well, at least I haven't found one yet, a school that you can go to to help you develop all the people handling skills you need as a disabled person. You know, it's not like, it's like parenthood. You know, there yes, there are plenty of books, but there's no real handbook for your own particular kid and you in your situation. Um, and I think what you've just spoken about there is part of that. And, you know, I've learned as I've, I've gone along um, so, you know, it was 2004 that I caught the bug that eventually led to my ME and fibromyalgia. And, you know, I ended up waking up paralysed January, I think, the 7th in 2006. A big day in my life because I woke up paralysed with no warning. And, you know, there was no handbook there to give to me to say this is what's going to happen here, there and everywhere. Um, and... I had to reconfigure my life and reconfigure reconfigure how I parented and how I managed relationships and friendships and all the rest of it. Um, and there is no handbook from that. So part of that handbook, if we were ever to write it, um, would be questions you are likely to be asked and possible solutions as to how to answer them. So like the individual that was asked, well, you know, does everything work down there? You know, there's a range of possible answers, <laughs> which is like, fuck off even my GP hasn't asked me that one (laughs) so that's an option uh there's the slightly more you know polite and correct one which is probably more suitable for the workplace um but you know you don't think you don't know to think about that until it at least happens once then you might think about what possible options you have to reply um but yeah but that's where I think the disabled community and our allies are really important because you know I pick up a lot of people handling skills from listening to um, podcasts and reading blogs and such like uh, and interviews and you think oh actually I'm not the only one that got asked that really you know 
um, <laughs> really intrusive question. Um, so, yeah, I get it. And But then you've got the other side of things. So as a woman who has two grown-up children, uh, I've had big problems in being able to access cervical screening and things like long-acting contraception. So I have a coil. Um, and my coil needed changing, and I also needed to get a smear test done. A smear test took three years longer to do than a non-disabled woman. Not that I was in the surgery or the, the clinic for three <laughs> years, because that would just be insane. But, you know, there was there was a letter came, and then I went to my local GP, and they didn't have any hoisting system or you know, lake supports on their table and their examination table. And then it was like, well, you know, let's give it a go and see how far we get sort of attitude. And we didn't get very far because I couldn't hold my legs in position because of my muscle fatigue situation. And and it was like, oh, and then what, what they don't seem to understand is that as somebody with a condition who's lived with it for many years, I know how my body works. They may have done their 13 years in medical, you know, education and practice, but they don't know what I face every day. And so I had to educate them about the fact that their have a go ended up in me being out of action for maybe two weeks because I had to recover energy and, you know, get over all of the um, busyness of the going to a surgery and getting things done or not done as it turned out. And that happened a few times. And then I got referred to like a bigger, slightly bigger clinic, which they thought would have leg supports. So you're like, okay, we get psyched up this time. We're going to get it. We're going to do it. We're going to whatever. And then you get there and they haven't got the leg supports, which then means there's another delay. And then certainly with smears, there's like um, a built in sort of window that the NHS do where if you've had an attempt, say in January the 1st, you're it's against medical advice to try again for another X amount of weeks or months. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it took uh, in total about three years to actually get the thing done, wow. which thankfully showed I was clear of any precancerous changes. But, you know, I look back at that and I think, well, what if there had been? What what treatment might I have missed out on that could have caught it early and been less intrusive than potentially a treatment that I would have to have after three years of it going unnoticed? Um, so that worked me up a bit. There's but, another side to this as well, though, because a lot, too many, to be fair, a lot yeah. of women put off going because, you know, yes. it's not exactly the nicest thing and yeah. it can feel very embarrassing and all of those things. Yeah. Um, but... It's bad enough if you're on and off the bed in two minutes and then you can go home and pretend it never happened and yes. drink in. Um, but if you're put in that position and it's so awkward and you're there for ages trying to do something that's never going to work, and yep. a lot of women won't go back. So yep. they've braved it once yep. and they'll be like, do you know, I'm not even, I'm not putting myself through that again. And then they put themselves in jeopardy. Yes. Yeah. But part of that whole consultation period and the reason it probably popped into my head um was the sort of pre-conversation with the senior doctor and um, so ultimately I managed to get the procedure done in the local hospital in the gynae unit because they had got the right sort of couch with the right sort of leg supports and with the right equipment so this is 
bang straight on the whole social model of disability with the right equipment. I literally was only in there for 10 minutes and got out again. And I'm like, well, you know, what a brilliant example of what's possible. Um, but before I even got as far as that examination catch, I had to face the prejudice of the senior doctor who, you know, we were having the consultation. He said, um, well, why is it that you want to have a coil fitted? <laughs> and we'd already covered the fact that, you know, he sort of asked me about getting on to a, a, um, an examination catch or something. And I said, well, yes, I can stand because I can. I can do a few steps. But because of a whole variety of medical situations, I rely on a wheelchair to get out and about. It gives me some quality of life. And, um, you know, shoot me. I like not having to be stuck in the same room, look at the same ceiling 52 weeks a year. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, so he, he came up with this question. He seemed shocked that people in wheelchairs could actually walk. So that was one thing. But I let that go. Do you know what I mean? Because there was a woman with a mission. And he, he throws out this question. Well, my face must have been a picture. My partner, Mike, was with me, thank goodness, because he held me back from running over the guy in my wheelchair. And the practice nurse that was in the room, you could hear her almost like she just didn't quite know where to put herself <laughs> so, so I put, I took a moment and I just turned around to this um senior doctor and I said well for the same reason that any woman who is sexually active and doesn't want to be in a, be in a position of having a child that is the reason that I need to have a coil put in and I just thought is it because I'm in a wheelchair and he's made an assumption that I either couldn't or shouldn't be having sex. Is it because due to my illnesses and medication and lack of mobility, I have put on a shit ton of weight over the last few years and he thinks that, you know, if you're over a size 12, you shouldn't be having sex either. Um, is it that he can't imagine how I could potentially have sex, which is like not down to him. That's entirely between me and whoever I'm having sex with. <laughs> I didn't know, but whatever it was, he got saved by that practice nurse because she managed to interject something which then you know calmed the situation down but at that point I was absolutely bullen do you know what I mean I was I was really quite angry and frustrated and all the rest of it but I had to sort of let it go because um I have episodes of paralysis and they're brought on by if I overstress either my brain or my body um so getting angry at somebody else only literally harms me so I have had to learn how to just let things go and do what's within my envelope of energy. Um, but yeah, I I was just, would he have said that if I wasn't in a wheelchair? I don't think so. Do you know what's kind of concerning? Now I get, of course, you know, medical practitioners, they are human beings too. Um, yeah. But what what is genuinely concerning, it's hard enough to get what I call the unconverted, you know, people, particularly in corporates or in, you know, other organisations um, who haven't ever had the conversation about disabilities, about inclusion. Um, yeah. It's hard enough sometimes reaching enough people to really make a difference. But anyone who goes into such a human centric profession as medicine, mm -hmm. I would expect them to have fundamental awareness of disabilities like not you know they're not going to be an expert in every condition yeah. they're not going to be an expert in every disability but yeah. I would expect them to have a fundamental disability confidence and I'm obviously completely deluded <laughs> well, I think 
well, something that shocked us, right, Mike and myself, it shocked us when, when we got um, our last bit of qualitative research to make sure that I wasn't the only horny, rampant, disabled woman in the whole of the UK. We took a stand at NADEX, a big disability exhibition that was back in 2015. So this was our, OK, we've done other bits of research. We've spoken to lots of people, but it's like, is there a market for the service that we feel should be out there? We had 700 people over three days that came to see us on that stand. And it became patently obvious from OTs, other health and medical professions, uh, students and qualified people that there isn't any time really given over to the how to speak to people, never mind how to you know interact professionally and supportively with the person with a disability. Um, and, you know, so they get maybe three hours in all of the years half a day maybe at a push in all of their years of study and practice in just general disability awareness and how to remember that the person in front of you is a person and not a collection of symptoms and so yeah so it's hardly surprising so that's one of the areas that we work with is getting the message through to medics health service staff allied health professionals you know, is we're getting the message out there that, you know, we're not going to beat people up over the fact that they didn't know how to do this before, because frankly, that's not very helpful. And um, so when I give examples of things, it's literally to give an example of some of the stuff to open eyes as to the sort of situations we as a disabled community face sometimes. And um, so, yeah, that that's what it is. What we're all about is, right, we're taking it from now this is an example of what happened previously, or this is the situation if we're brought in to do a little bit of troubleshooting because an incident has happened. Um, and it's just like, bear this in mind, or it's helpful to phrase this like this. Um, so for example, can I give an example? You can give an example. <laughs> okay, I'll give an example. Yeah, I've got the power. Um, so an example would be, and it doesn't matter whether you're a social worker or any other allied health professional, at the end of Pretty much every care-focused meeting that I have ever had, because I, um, before I met Mike, I was in receipt of a personal care type package. And at the end of every meeting, any health or social care professional, the question was, right, well, is there anything else? You know, have you got any other questions? That's, that's, there are the phrases that are used. So what I've suggested to people is, have you got any other questions is unhelpful to the client that they're trying to support who is scared shitless about asking questions about sex or intimacy. So it would be perhaps more helpful and more productive if they tag on a few words onto, have you got any other questions? Which would be something like, have you got any other questions? It can be anything, honestly. It could be um, to do with equipment. It could be to do with uh, intimacy and relationships. You know, if you need any support, please don't be afraid or embarrassed to to speak up and yeah. um, so you know that's the thing and then yeah. I created a um a sex and intimacy card and um, so it's like you, you a person can hand it over to their health or social care professional it basically says about you know we want to start this conversation I need you to help me um, and basically get over your embarrassment because I need this help and you're a professional something like that 
Yeah. There's a lot to be said about explicit communication because it is important yeah. and not everyone will receive messages the same way, like you say. But I've got to say, I'm not often shocked in this space, but when it comes to medicine, that still surprises me about the lack of, you know, learning and so on. I think it's bad enough that teachers aren't taught. So it blows my mind yeah. doctors and nurses um, aren't taught. Um, but on that, I know there's something you've been working on. And of course, it's all links back to your own experiences as well. But certainly the experiences loads of others must have experienced. Yeah. I've said experience a lot there. <laughs> but I know you've got a project going on to improve accessibility at GP clinics and at sexual health clinics. What are you doing? Well, what we're doing is I've realised recently I don't need to get permission of the government or anybody else or a board member team or whatever to be able to make a difference because I was planning the the campaign that we started it's called better access for better access which is going to be on the hashtag thing as ba numeral four ba okay we've even got a hashtag for it and it was I, I realized that the approach I was having which was you know start local influence the local people and then spread it around the UK that could take far too long so I thought if we do this campaign and the campaign is that by the 31st of December 2024 we want to see at least in one examination couch in every GP and sexual health clinic in the entirety of the UK we want to see a hoisting system and we want to see leg and arm supports and we want that so Every GP practice and sexual health clinic in the UK. So we're give, we've basically given ourselves two years to do it, and so I've sort of super speeded up um, and decided I'm not going to mess around at just the local level. We're going to go straight to the top. So we're now having conversations with really senior staff in the NHS, and I'm now decided I'm not going to be backwards and coming forwards. Um, and I've invited people that you know we've identified that this is a problem and we want to be part of the solution SWAD wants to be part of the solution and we're inviting anybody else who wants to be part of the solution to really you know step up and it can be things like we've already had some success that people have been on previous courses with us because that's our main bread and butter stuff is training courses is you know yes you might have zip all funding to be able to help do some but you may know somebody who knows somebody yeah. And it may be that that person has got a network and sends out emails regularly or something or a newsletter. So if they put about our campaign in their newsletter, what we're encouraging individuals to do is to please email us and put better access campaign um, in their email subject. And if they've had a good experience of being able to get um, you know, clinic appointments that are accessible, we want to hear about those. But we also want to hear about where people have faced challenges or barriers, because if we know about those, then, you know, it may be somebody else has already found an answer and we can share that widely. Um, or it may be that we can turn into campaign mode um, and advocate uh, and really try and come up with solutions and then train the staff that we deal with and support, train them in what it is the people they are trying to support, what those people need to make it a better experience. So, love that. Where do they send their email to? Uh, they can send it to admin at swaddorset.org. So that's A-D-M-I-N 
at sign swadorset.org and in the subject heading better access campaign excellent if i can include bit... links with the uh episode as well so oh, fantastic we, we can make sure that people can definitely reach out to you the reason it's swad and not sex with a difference is if we kept it um in our you know uh, our original website was sexwithadifference.com um, and, you know, the emails were Lorraine at Sex with a Difference and stuff. And then we did a, a public event offering support to people. And we got some feedback that actually in their inbox, if it showed up as sex, it was like that could cause problems. And the suggestion was we we change it. So we decided to SWAD, which could be anything. But we know it's about sex with a difference. Um, and, yeah, that that has helped um tremendously yeah gets over the barrier doesn't it yeah I can imagine a lot of um interesting conversations with partners seeing an email in an inbox from the rain at sex with a difference (laughs) (laughs) say to people oh yeah I've got this training company and you know I I work from my bed and the industry is about sex you know can you imagine um so you know um, and as it goes, we are great supporters of the right to have sex as long as you are, you know, able to consent. Um, then we feel it's nobody's business but yours as to what you may get up to in a bedroom or any other location. And um, so we are very supportive of sex workers and allied professions um, because we don't feel that it's up to us to make a judgment on that. And um, so obviously we're not into the whole modern slavery thing. People shouldn't be forced to do things that they don't want to do and certainly not by criminal gangs. Um, but yes, as a profession, and I've always felt this way actually since I was quite young, is I don't understand why the oldest profession in the world is causing so much problems and why people still think that it can be stamped out. It's been, you know, since the beginning of time. Um, I don't see anything wrong with it, but that's personal opinion. Yeah. I'll be honest, as long as it's by choice, I completely understand where you're coming from. Yeah. On that, though, not so much about uh, sex workers, but, you know, obviously about consensual. Yes. A lot of the time... You know, I see a lot of statistics about disabled people, not so much physically disabled people, but, you know, people with learning disabilities and neurodivergence um, sometimes can be highly susceptible to coercion. Mm -hmm. And so do you ever support people, you know, with regard safeguarding, with regard them recognising what healthy sexual relationships are versus... Well, yeah, coercion for want of an nicer word. Yes, yeah, uh, we do. Um, our specialty is not in learning disability. So we have some really fantastic organisations like Supported Loving is just one off the top of my head um, who do have a lot more experience in supporting people with learning disabilities and autism than we do. But that said, because as I, as I uh, work my magic over the internet to find resources that can help our clients... And inevitably, I happen across stuff that could be of help to uh, individuals or parent carers or partner carers or, you know, um, officials. So within health and social care. And so we share best practice as much as we possibly can do. We're very alert to safeguarding issues. Um, But one of the things that we hold fast to is the importance of 
using the correct anatomical names for things. So we will mention slang words, so like cock and dick and prick and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we also use the medically correct term penis. Um, we had a situation I became aware of um, about a year or so ago, and somebody who worked within the learning disability field was asking for some support and how they could re- you know, improve safeguarding um, for the people that they support. And they related uh, a situation where a female uh, had been complaining to staff that uh, a relative had been stealing their cookies, kept eating their cookies. Um, and it only transpired after a long period of time, it came to light that cookies was the expression used for her female genitals. Oh. So therefore, when she said that the relative was eating her cookies it was a sexual act which didn't get picked up on for ages because of the terminology that was used so it's really important you know we're not if you're asking sort of the philosophy that we have at SWAT is there is nothing that can't be spoken about there's nothing that shouldn't be spoken about especially when it comes to safeguarding not telling people about how their bodies work and naming parts and all the rest of it is actually the responsible thing to do you know us coming and talking to a group of people is not going to make them immediately want to go out and shag everything left right and center you know in fact it probably may help people to um vocalize what is going on and that they need support and so yeah that's and also things like you know people who use AAC devices assistive communication like the gizmo that Stephen Hawking used to use yeah computerized voice and we've been to disability equipment exhibitions and actually asked the companies who create those devices you know is there they have a, a grid I think is the expression they use there's a grid and then somebody can either press or eye gaze depending if that's how they communicate um a particular icon or picture and that you know can put together what they want to say well if you don't have on a grid words for body parts or expressions like I want to hug or whatever and if you're talking about people of the you know, legal sexual age who have got the capacity to consent, they just can't verbalize it in the way that you or I might be able to. Uh, (laughs) Mike came up with an example of what could possibly be used on a grid, which is, you know, turn me over and fuck me like a big boy. Um, And, you know, they don't have that on a grid, but in a personal relationship, in a in a bedroom situation <laughs> so sorry that came out of the blue didn't it and um, you know if if <laughs> I don't necessarily want you know Brian Blessed's voice or any other voice you know any famous person their voice I don't want their voice coming out in the bedroom to me if I'm having to use one of those devices I mean that would be quite off-putting and you know or Jim in the grid department at a communication company you know vocalizing you know uh I'd like 69 do you know what I mean it just (laughs) it's not gonna work it's just it's not gonna do it for me um so yeah we're, we're big believers in things like voice banks so that if you have uh I think most people should do it anyway, quite frankly, is bank their voices. It might help out other people that have regional accents like yours, or it may be it could be useful to you in the future. Um, but yeah, we're big believers in um, 
yeah, you, you think ahead because you never know when it might be handy. <laughs> Put your face as a picture. Oh, it just made me laugh. My cheeks are hurting me. <laughs> Bless. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it, it, I mean, it's, it is a real, you know, serious subject, but it's yeah. just, yeah, it's a way, it's a way you tell them. It's definitely the way you tell oh, them. You. Oh, goodness. Oh, I think I need a tissue wipe my eyes. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it is so important because, of course, the whole part of equity is everybody being able to do all the things they want to do, all the things that, you know, fulfills them in life. Um, yep. in the ways that they want to do them and sex is part of that so how do we make that equitable and actually this might have come up to you before oh go on then but um, it was actually a disabled lady that asked me the question but she said to me have you ever ever found an accessible condom because that's a really good part, point right <laughs> because they're the most awkward things for most people yeah so if you've got, you know, either limited mobility or poor dexterity or whatever. Yep, yep. Um, how do you practice safe sex? Well, yes. <laughs> but not only that is how do you get the condoms? If you're reliant on a care worker um, to support you to go out shopping oh, yeah. or your your mum. And have free pot noodles and a packet of fridge. Yeah. 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 Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's and but also it's like um, slightly going back to the whole sex work thing is historically most brothels that I'm aware of have been flats above rows of shops. OK, no doubt there are other ones with flats and all the rest of it. But, you know, stereotypically in my head anyway, possibly not for the rest of the world. Um, but you're talking about locations that are above street level now. Do we know how many stair lifts or regular lifts there are going to those types of flats? Oh, minimal, I would guess. Yeah. Absolutely. If any, but minimal. Exactly. So on a very, very basic level, it's like as a as a grown ass adult, if you're at home because of your care needs and you've not been able to move out and live independently, where the hell do you start that conversation with your mum and dad about the fact that you would like a sex worker to come and have a session with you? Because you're not able to get into a brothel. Yeah. And who is it, you know, if you were able, say it was somebody operating out of um, one of those service department situations, you know, we we are aware from people that have told us that even being able to get to a sexual health clinic for what is a responsibly adult mature thing to do and have regular sexual health checks if you're sexually active, right? We are aware that in some cases... Agency staff have been told that they can't bring the individual to that appointment um, because there's not enough care hours. Okay, so even for a sexual health check, there's not enough care hours and, and, you know, care agencies have refused people the support to be able to go and get that health check. Question whether or not if it was, you know, a breast cancer health check might have been might have been possible but certainly for a sexual health check there haven't been enough hours in somebody's package so you know I asked the question you know, how likely is it that if I was an adult who needed 
a lot of physical support to be able to go and have my massage session, quote unquote, how likely is it I'm going to have the care hours to be able to help me to go to that? And also, we've not even touched on the subject of carers themselves, whether they be family carers or paid care workers, their own value systems coming in and potentially having an effect on the care that a person receives. Yeah. So as an example of that, in the early days, I had a care worker who came in and, and said to me that I needed to pray harder for a cure. Now, I grew up in a religious family and I'm absolutely fine with religion. I don't choose these days to go to a church to sort of have my spiritualness fed. And I have I genuinely have no issue with somebody who is of any particular faith system. But I do have an issue with somebody turning around to me and saying that I haven't prayed hard enough for a cure. They've met me 30, 60 minutes earlier and they're coming out with that. So I rang the agents. I said, please do not send that person anywhere near me again. This is what was said. I'm not having that. Do what you need to do. But yeah, that's like the ultimate victim blaming, blaming, isn't it really? That one. And I think there's also a big training thing there because it comes back to that whole, you know, the education and how you communicate and, you know, yeah, I mean, you could be perfectly capable as a carer to do your physical job. Yes. But there's more to caring than manoeuvring someone and keeping them fed and clean. Yeah. So I was very open and honest with the care agency that I was working um, with. Uh, or that were supporting me, I basically said exactly what it is that I do. And um, so said about SWAT, said there are there's going to be umpteen books around the place about sex. You know, there may even be some toys and bits, because if I'm supporting somebody with how to use something, you know, they may be there. Um, and there may be loads of condoms around because we had a really good relationship with our local sexual health clinic. So when we had events, we would always make sure that we had condoms there and, and um, STI information leaflets. So I just said to them, it's like this. This is what's going to be going on in this house. Please filter <laughs> anybody you send to me because I, don't, I also don't want to cause offence. You know, people are entitled to their own beliefs. Um, so I don't want to send somebody, you know, psychologically maimed from their session with me because they've seen, you know, vibrators and a harness or something, you know. So I don't want to, to negatively affect people. But equally, it's my home and I live there. And, you know, why should that be affected because of somebody that's coming into work in my space? Um, whereas with some care staff and situations, um, it's very much you feel like it's a care placement and you're just visiting. You know yeah. what I mean? It's no longer that there's a sort of psychological shift there that needs to happen. It's interesting because obviously with carers, typically they're literally sent where they're told, right? Yes. So, you know, it, with most jobs, you you are quite selective about the organisation that you'll work for. So, for instance, you know, someone with particular beliefs wouldn't go and work in an abortion clinic. Yes. Yeah. Which is fine. But, of course, you know, if they were to go to care for someone who maybe that's actually all the advice they were giving to someone, yeah. um, that whole thing is just not a good fit. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. 
Um, talking about fits, before I let you go and probably <laughs> a magic question. Oh, God. Obviously, you, you know, you and I are in a similar place with the fact that we run, you know, small businesses, very different, but you still have all the same challenges. But I want to ask you about that because, I mean, there can be so many barriers when you're running a business anyway. And as a non-disabled person, I obviously hit less of them. So as a disabled person, how do you manage these things? Because venues, for instance, I mean, I see it all the time. And, I, you know, I shake my head. Sometimes it's disability-centric events and they're inaccessible stages, aren't accessible for speakers, all of that stuff. And you do this. You go out to talk to people. So do you hit barriers a lot? Quite a few, yeah. Um, and for a long time, it, it put me off doing stuff you know and because I just didn't have the energy spoons um and the sort of brain power to know how to handle it and that's also you know where my autism kicks in is the not being totally sure on what's an acceptable thing to say and what's not and tying myself in knots before I ever open my mouth which may not seem like it in this interview but honest to god there's a lot of thought that goes in before I say stuff and write stuff so it takes me a lot longer to complete a task than a neurotypical person usually um but yeah I face stuff to do with uh I was booked for a national medical conference and uh you know there was the whole thing about oh yeah the place is wheelchair accessible and all the rest of it well when I drill down I now know that I always have to check about lift sizes and dimensions not just within the lift but also you know a lift door doesn't go all the way to the inside edge necessarily of the dimension of the internal of the lift so I thought oh well I'm just going to send these organizers I'll say well look can I just check have you got this this and this and you know I really appreciate photos of that um, you know, so things like accessible loos, a lot of builders seem to think you stick a grab rail or two in, um, sorted, cushy, no bother. And that's not the case at all. Um, so, yeah, when the dimensions came back of the uh, lift, which was in and we get I come across this so often, it was in a like grade two listed or historic property that you can't mess with and all this sort of stuff. And the it was five centimeters too short this lift from my wheelchair so it meant and because the conference floor was above ground level I wasn't going to be able to get there I didn't even get as far as checking could I've got on a stage because I wasn't going to be able to get up to that level so I ended up not being able to go to the conference uh yes I was able to deliver my speech virtually but on a business level, I missed out on all the networking, on people seeing my face. You know, my wheelchair is a key asset when I am out and about because that's real people talking to somebody in a wheelchair, possibly for the first time ever that they've spoken to somebody in a wheelchair. And the impact that that can have on them, that I'm a living, breathing, intelligent person who is able to run a business and deliver great speeches. And it means that the next time they happen to meet somebody who's a wheelchair user, I'd like to think they're a lot more confident and and less sort of anxious about that. So lifts are an issue. Um, also stages are an issue. And that can be things like recently I was booked to do something. And uh, because I've now trained up a lot of the people that I work with, 
and to ask questions they've got you know we've had meetings in various places they've started to realize that not all doors are equal and that yes it might be my legs I need for my legs is one of the reasons I'm in a wheelchair but actually being able to be in a wheelchair and open really heavy fire doors it's just not happening I personally don't have the arm strength for that there will be other wheelchair users who will but for me and a lot of other people we can't do that so yeah so the the person who was organizing this particular event took up the battle on my behalf to say, you know, the, the event was like, oh, well, you know, uh, Miss Stanley can be here on the floor level and you guys will be on such a level, you know, that's fine. And I said, no, 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 no. Um, and then the only other option was like a 10 foot high stage, which would be, you know, if you've got concerts and stuff on. And apparently there was a, there was a, uh, I was going to say slide, but I don't mean slide. <laughs> there was a ramp. <laughs> you never know. Um, there was a ramp that could go up to the 10 foot high stage, but they hadn't got a ramp that could go up to the two foot high stage. Now I'm lucky because I became aware of, and my current wheelchair is a specialist wheelchair and it has a seat riser in it. So I start off at like ground level and I press a button and the seat literally goes up like a lift until it's at the level I want. So I can be bar bar height. Or, That's clever uh, stuff. Yeah. So actually, for me, it's a real, you know, I am quite pissed off that there's still not ramps to things. But logically and practically speaking, I can raise so that people can see me. But in some ways, that's not the point. It should be a standard thing that there is a ramp at these events because you never know who's going to be coming and who may need to be on that stage it's not even whether or not you know the person's coming and and like you say you won't necessarily know but it's not even if you know the person coming got a disability for instance what happened if they went skiing last week broke their leg and so they're in a different position this week but they're still coming because they're soldiering on yeah it's it's really short-sighted but also I know that there's a lack of education and I know people need to learn a lot more about disability inclusion but they do need to understand it's not just about access it's about equity and I've had some really frustrating conversations with people they say no it's fine thought about this so all of the other speakers will be on the stage and we've made sure there's sufficient space in front of the stage for our wheelchair user uh Right, okay, so you've got this nice position, professional raised panel. Yep. yep. And the extra one who's yep. also in a seated position as well. It's not like they're even standing and yep. visible. It's about being floor. othered. It's it's about being othered, isn't it? I don't think anybody yeah. likes being othered or being differented, if like that's that even word, a correct word. Um, what I started to do recently, and I'm there's a business organization that I'm part of now and uh, they were organizing an event and it was it was very very relevant to our field of work and because I've been to a few events they're aware of access stuff so they actually are really um, responsive to if I ask for something or point something out they're really doing fantastic work to support me and by default anybody else who comes along with disability But on this occasion, the solution to me not being able to go to the room that was booked, I didn't find acceptable. And then my autism kicked in and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I'm picking up a fuss and the anxiety. I thought, no, Lorraine. So I gave myself a good talking to. And I came up with some possible solutions. They came back with another solution. They asked me, oh, is that acceptable? Now, the easiest thing in the world to say would have been yes. But I put my big girl pants on and I said, actually no I do appreciate the steps you've taken but I want to be 
you know, it's important I am literally, it is important I'm in the room. It's important people hear me, see me in action, because that will be the basis on which they may or may not do business with me. So your solution is not acceptable. So we either do this, this, or this. So I came up with options. One of the options was change the venue to one that is accessible. But do you know what was miraculous? What happened miraculously was I asserted myself and lo and behold, a room that was accessible magically appeared. Go figure. And that, that venue is now much more aware of how they had presented themselves and what work it would be helpful for them to do. And it also meant that I educated the people who were organising and then trying to book a venue that, you know, having video links and all the rest of it and being the other, like you were saying on that stage, where every other professional is on the stage, but you're like, literally, they are looking down on you physically, not necessarily metaphor, you know, actually. But psychologically, it's a huge thing. Um, And ultimately, you know, I want to be able, I'm only only able to work part time because of my health situation. So I need to make every hour that I work count twice as much as a lot of other people. So I've already got enough shit to deal with. Do you know what I mean? Um, But I'm now not backward in coming forward because I know that the next time, um, you know, the, the hotel where the lift was five centimeters too short, I then educated the venue booker and said, look, please don't book that hotel again unless they resolve the issue you know and then when the money this purple pound that a lot of us like to talk about when the money is walking out of that hotel's door or rolling out of that hotel's door and some other hotel that is more forward thinking is accessible that's when they'll stand up and take notice yeah I mean don't get me wrong I mean I was in property for 20 years and of course there are some limitations with listed buildings but Far more often, it's just used as an excuse because I've seen some really clever solutions that are in line with what you can do that do make these buildings really accessible. And you don't necessarily have to go to that extent, but there are absolutely steps you can take. So I think people need to stop hiding hiding behind some uh, categories and get over it and start being more human-centric. So, Lorraine, here's, oh, the, here's the classic one, because this is this is my favourite question, even though the rest of the questions are probably more powerful in the sense of we learn more. I just love the answers to this. So, Harry Potter fan here, you get my magic wand now. So I'm giving you a magic wand, and so there's no limitations. You can wave it, cast a spell, and create a way of making the world more inclusive. What are you going to do? Ramps, not steps. Ooh, simple but effective. Yeah. Um, Everybody can use a ramp. Not everybody can use steps. This is very true. But I'm going to be cheeky and I'm going to add in another one. Oh, you're not the first. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Equal first place, joint first place winners Um, is don't let the can of worms stop you. Oh, I like that. I'm genuinely going to find one of these can of worms you're telling me about because it's going to be a brilliant conversation piece. It, yeah, I'm actually we're thinking of because we're at, we've got a stand at Nadex that's happening oh, okay. in a few weeks. Um, and we're looking forward to meeting lots of people that we've met before and also some new people. And I've got a thing in my head that I'm going to do a little goodie basket that we can have um, people in a raffle. And uh, I have located cans of worms and I have a feeling they're going to end up 
in the goodie basket, along with chocolate willies and uh, <laughs> jelly baby boobs. Um, you can spot the theme. So, yeah. So ramps, not stairs. And what did I say? Something about a can of worms? That one. Yeah. Yeah. The can one. of worms, making yeah. sure it doesn't stop you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think, you know, God, you've, you've shared so much with us and I think it's just so powerful. One, because it does actually solve a lot of curiosity, but it also shows people they're not alone. It does show people there are organisations out there where you can ask your questions. Yeah. So SWAD, um, everyone, uh, look it up. But your um, Better Access campaign is just such a powerful thing. I didn't know until I met you, Lorraine, about the lack of accessibility in GP clinics and sexual health clinics. Yeah. Um, I'm really quite you know aware a lot of the time with access but that is one thing that had never hit my radar so thank you for educating me and I'll certainly be looking to see how we can also support nobody wants to be othered so thank you for sharing I love that word now for sharing your own stories and experiences and of course your um, professional ones and just for taking the time to be with us today so that everyone can learn from you you've been you're welcome it has been a hoot my cheeks still hurt (laughs) so are mine I'm like oh my god it was like we need we need some I don't know I need some massage. There we go. <laughs> stuff again, doesn't it? Nice face massage. That'd be fabulous. Yeah. But thank you for having me. Um, oh. I really appreciate it. If it helps the message get out there to more people and the more people that know about this stuff, um, the better life hopefully can be for people like me and lots of others. So, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening to this episode. Um, I hope your cheeks don't hurt as much as mine, but if they do, it's only from a good way. But um, I have no doubt you would have learned a lot from the rain. So I will share the links, but remember to check out SWAD, so S-W-A-D, but also the Better Access campaign, so hashtag number four B-A. Yeah, and until next time, when we come back with more myth busting, take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please rate us and leave us a review. We really want to know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the amazing guest speakers we have lined up.